Hello and welcome to this sermon podcast. My name is Esther and it's good to be back with you all. At the moment, I'm sitting down with a cup of tea, the kids are in bed, the dog's at my feet, and I'm glad for this moment to share the next message in our sermon series entitled Ears to Hear, in which we're studying the book of Revelation to hear what it is Jesus has to say to the churches. Now, the word revelation in Greek is the word apocalypse, from which we get our English word apocalypse. When we hear the word apocalypse, we think perhaps of a sweaty, disheveled, yet still attractive heroine or hero making their way alone through a barren landscape devastated by aliens or meteors or hordes of zombies. But that's not what the Greek word is getting at. The word apocalypse refers not to a cataclysmic event, but simply to a previously hidden truth being unveiled. Apocalypse means uncovering. And specifically, an apocalypse in the Bible meant an uncovering of the spiritual realm. It's when we on earth are exposed to the reality of God's realm and God's view when we get God's perspective on what's happening here. Jesus was the ultimate apocalypse, right? Because he was God on earth. Seeing Jesus, we could see right into God's world and purposes. But now Jesus was gone. What was left were these churches scattered around the Mediterranean world. What was God doing? Where was it all going? We might be wondering these same things today. The pandemic was and is, interestingly, an apocalyptic event in both the modern and ancient senses of the word. It was this event that ended the world as we knew it, and in doing so, uncovered a lot of things, including our ideas and practices of church. What is church all about? Why do we even need church right now? Well, Jesus himself gives us some answers in the book of Revelation in seven letters that he writes to different churches. And today we'll be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. And I'm just going to tell you the punchline right at the start. In this letter, Jesus calls the church to truth. And the enemy of that truth is not always a lie. The enemy of that truth is compromise. The letter of Pergamum has the same format that most of the others do. There's a commendation, a rebuke, and a promise. We're going to talk through each of those, looking at what this call to truth means for us as individuals and then for us as a church. And just as a note, as is typical for apocalyptic literature, we're going to encounter a lot of symbolism that sounds rather bizarre to us, but would have made a lot more sense to its original audience. So we'll be unpacking some context along the way to help us make sense of the symbols we'll see. Let's read the first two verses found in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. A few weeks ago, we read the vision of Jesus that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. And what Jesus does at the start of each letter is pick one of those symbolic attributes to identify himself to each particular church. And in this letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus recalls this image of himself as the one with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. 
That word for sword refers to a Thracian broadsword used in cavalry charges. In Roman times, this sword was a symbol of power and justice. In the Old Testament, the sword is spoken of as coming from God's mouth because the word of his mouth comes with power and judgment. And a double-edged sword was symbolic for one that cuts both ways, that wounds and heals, that cuts with truth and grace, or as Hosea puts it beautifully, that sings and stings. Why would Jesus choose the symbol of power and judgment in identifying himself to the church in Pergamum? Well, Pergamum was the center of political and religious power and judgment at that time. It was a fortress of a city located in modern-day Turkey, and it sat high up on the top of a hill. It was the capital of that whole region at one point. People would come from all over the world to travel up that hill into the heart of the city for their impressive buffet of temples. If you were in search of counsel, there was the Temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. If you were lonely, you could visit the temple of Dionysus for a night. He was the god of fertility and pleasure. If you were physically sick, you could go to the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. His symbol was a snake. If you wanted knowledge, Pergamum was famous for its library. The word parchment actually comes from the word Pergamum because parchment was invented there. Interesting side note, the library collection was so great that Mark Antony gave all 200,000 volumes in it as a wedding gift to Cleopatra. And finally, you could always go to the temple of the top dog, the OG, the god of gods, Zeus, whose temple was in the shape of a giant throne, which may have been why Pergamum is referred to as the place of Satan's throne. And that's not even the least of it. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a living Roman emperor. Three times, Pergamum was named the capital for imperial worship. And it was that honor, more than anything, that made it the leading city in the province. As a sign of its status, Pergamum was given what was called the power of the sword, which meant that they could carry out capital punishment without first obtaining Rome's approval. Pergamum was indeed a place of thrones, literal temple thrones, but also seats of religious and political power. You can imagine the incredible social and economic pressure, not to mention the constant temptation, for Christians living there to look to these gods as a way of life. All the working guilds recognized Caesar's deity, and there were many festivals for the gods that people were expected to participate in. Yet Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for holding fast to their faith. We don't know much about Antipas, except that he died for what he believed. The first piece of spiritual reality Jesus wants us to hear is this, I know where you live. I know how hard it can be to follow Jesus where you live. I know what it costs you to push through the cultural pressure, the moments of doubt, the loneliness, the struggles. I know. And for all of us here on earth, trying to figure out our faith and figure out church and the world we find ourselves in right now, that should be a great encouragement. But there's something the Pergamum Church is not doing all that well. Let's read the next few verses. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here we have to recall the story of Balaam. 
And by the way, most people think the Nicolaitans were teaching something similar to Balaam. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers and is most famous perhaps for featuring a talking donkey. I think the only talking donkey in the Bible. Balaam is a pagan prophet for hire. The Israelites had encamped near Moab, and to try to get rid of them, the prince of the Moabites, Balak, offers Balaam money and prestige if he will curse the Israelites. Balaam tries to do this three times, but finds he cannot speak the actual words of a curse. He stopped at one point by the talking donkey. But Balaam still wants the promised reward, so he advises the Moabites to do something more subtle instead. They send Moabite women in to mingle with the Israelites and invite them to worship the Moabite god. The Israelites begin to practice both immorality and idolatry, and God curses them with a plague and judgment. Throughout the Bible, Balaam then becomes proverbial for the false teacher who influences believers to compromise their faith through cultural assimilation. See, Balaam couldn't curse the Israelites with anything so obvious as a spoken word, just like the church at Pergamum was officially holding to their beliefs. But Balaam ultimately cursed them by getting them not to deny their faith, but to compromise their faith in how they lived and what other gods they started to co-worship. And there were apparently people in the Pergamum church who were teaching the same things. And you might be like, hey, we're not doing this. There's no Moabite God here, no Athena or Zeus or Caesar. But think about what worship means. Worship is what we pay homage to with our attention, our money, our time, our energy. What we worship is whatever gives us meaning, purpose, and identity. What we worship is whatever we center our lives around. What we worship is whatever we are becoming like. And friends, we all worship something, or maybe several things. We have quite the buffet here, too. We worship the gods of career, the perfect family, the political platform, the social agenda. We worship the god of self, self display, self expression, self fulfillment, self as the source of ultimate authority and meaning. And we worship these gods for the same reasons that the Romans or Moabites worshiped their gods for social acceptance, for sexual freedom, for political loyalty, for reputation, money, power, or achievement. The strange thing is it becomes entirely possible for our lives to revolve around these gods, like for all of our attention and energy to center around these things, to functionally believe that these things are what save us, these things are what make us okay, are what tells us who we are and whether we're good enough. It's possible to live like that and yet, if asked, say that we believe in Jesus. What we do when we live like that is make God into who we want him to be. We might compartmentalize our faith into something we just take out when it's convenient for us. We might make God into our backup plan, someone we call on if the other stuff doesn't work out. God becomes a tool to advance our own agendas. But here's the spiritual truth Jesus wants us to hear. If that is God to you, like if God is your backup plan, if God is your way of co-worshiping other gods, if that is God to you, then that is not God. Jesus says this for the second time here. I am the one with a double-edged sword. I am the one with ultimate power and judgment. I am the one who sits on the only throne in your life and nothing less. Anything less is not who I am. Anything less is someone you've made me out to be. 
And all that judgment means is that one day we will be held accountable to that. One day, God's opinion of us will be the only opinion that matters. So who's sitting on the throne of your life? If you were to ask Jesus to uncover in your heart any areas or attitudes of compromise, what would you see? Maybe you're aware of compromising in a general sense, just that you haven't been turning your attention enough to God throughout the week, that it's gotten easier and easier for you to start listening to the other voices around you. Maybe it's a general sense that the anxiety, the desire for control, or the fear you've been experiencing are showing you that you've put yourself on the throne of figuring out your life rather than God. Maybe it's something specific, like realizing your life has come to revolve too much around your work, or that you've given in to some temptation you know is wrong. Maybe you've not spoken or acted for what's right in order to be more socially accepted. Maybe you've bought into the Bay Area metrics of success for yourself or for your children, rather than what Jesus might think. Here's the invitation Jesus is holding out. You can change. We can change. That's all that repentance means. Therefore, repent. You can say to God today, I'm sorry I haven't lived with you at the center of all areas of my life. I'm sorry I've compromised in intentional and unintentional ways. Help me to change. What would change look like for you? As we think about this, I thought I'd share a metaphor I heard from a friend that's been helpful. We tend to think of our lives as existing in buckets. Each activity is a bucket. The kids' school, kids' sports, work, hobbies, church. These buckets might overlap now and then, but particularly here in the Bay Area, they're mostly separate. And God becomes another bucket. And we think that what we have to do is shuffle the buckets around until they're in the right order of importance. Like probably the God bucket should be first, then maybe the marriage bucket. Does the work bucket or the parenting bucket come next? But I don't think that's the model that Jesus is talking about here. The picture he paints is more like that of a solar system, where all of our activities are planets that revolve around God as the sun. See, God is not another bucket. He is the center that holds everything together through its gravitational pull. He is the center that casts life-giving light upon every other planet. He is the center through which we see our life upon every other planet. You see, God is not calling us to leave our culture lest we compromise. He's calling us to center our lives around the truth so that we can interpret our culture through that lens, not the other way around. And you know, there's some flexibility in the orbits because all orbits are elliptical or at least that's what Google tells me. I know nothing about astrophysics, like taking physics was the worst part of being pre-med for me. Because all orbits are elliptical, sometimes one planet may come closer or be more prominent than another planet, depending maybe on the season of life we're in or what our circumstances are. But no matter what, God is always there at the center, and we are always shining His light and His truth into whatever planets there are in our lives. Repentance means putting God back in the center, putting Jesus back on the throne by reordering the solar system of our life. What helps us do that? What helps us stay centered on God? When you look back, when are the times you've connected with God the most? How can you stay connected with God now? 
Is it going to a small group, regularly reading or listening to the Bible, setting aside time to pray? Is it finding a spiritual mentor or friend who can call you out when things get off track? Is it finding time for a retreat? Is it sticking a post-it note with a verse or phrase on your dashboard or bathroom mirror? Is it getting out for a walk where you do nothing but look around you? How do you feel connected to God and how can you practice this more in your life this week? So we've talked about what it means to be called to truth as individuals, but here's the thing. We can lose the truth as a church too. The church can start centering itself around the gods of our culture. It can turn to the God of politics or power and make faith into something that's used to get people to vote a certain way. It can turn to the God of the social agenda. It can turn to the God of self and make Sundays into a social group or a self-help experience that's centered around us. We need to remember as a church, too, to center ourselves on the truth We have to be familiar with and founded on the truth of the Bible, having the courage to look into what it says on tricky issues, even if it goes against what those around us may believe. We have to test what is being taught. We have to hold each other to the truth as we live out our lives together. And we have to do all this in the way of Jesus. The church has hurt so many people when it wields truth with condemnation or self-righteousness or hypocrisy. That is not the way of Jesus. And in fact, he reserved some of his harshest words for people in the institutionalized religions of his day who lived like that. Yes, the truth sometimes means we believe one thing and not another. It sometimes means we aim to do one thing and not another. But the truth is not just about behavior modification. It's not just one more standard to meet or one more formula to follow so we can get it right. That's not at the heart of what Jesus is calling us to. And we know that because of the last verse in this letter. Let's read it now. Revelation chapter 2 verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is this hidden manna and what is this white stone? Well, just as the story of Balaam happened during the Israelites' life in the wilderness, so does the story of manna. Instead of eating food offered to Moabite idols, Jesus is recalling here the food from heaven that God provided to nourish and save his people. That manna was given fresh each day, but there was one pot of it that they kept aside. It was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant so that they would always remember how God had provided. That hidden manna pointed to Jesus, who called himself the bread of life, who came from heaven and was broken to give his life. It also points to something in the future that the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will be finally reunited with Jesus for a heavenly feast, when all that is hidden will finally be made known. But what about the white stone? Back then, jurors would cast their verdict with a stone. A black stone meant guilty, and a white stone was a vote for acquittal. White stones were also used as tickets to get admitted into certain banquets. You see how these symbols are coming together. Jesus promises us the white stone, providing acquittal, providing admission to a feast where there will be manna that satisfies all of it possible through Jesus, who died to give us that stone of admission, who was broken like the bread to give us eternal life. And he promises all of it in personal, intimate 
relationship. The stone is not just any stone. There's a secret new name written on it. In ancient Near East cultures, to know someone's name was to enter into an intimate relationship with that person and share in their character or power. The name was the essence of a person. In the Old Testament, when the high priest would come into the holy place before God's presence on behalf of the people, he would bear on his breastplate 12 different stones, each one inscribed with the name of one of the tribes of Israel, as a way of symbolizing that he was bringing those people before God. We don't know for sure what this secret name is about, but it suggests a kind of intimate knowledge and presence. At the heart of the call to truth, see, is an invitation to be in relationship with a person. And it is out of that relationship that we begin to desire to live without compromise, that we begin to understand how to do it, not so we can deserve or earn anything, but simply because we love that person, the person of Jesus. The call to truth may involve believing certain things, but at its heart, it's not an agenda or platform. It's a call to character, a call to a way of life, to living the way that Jesus did, because the truth is a person. Listen, why is the book of Revelation a singular word? Why is it not revelations? I find myself slipping up and adding that S because after all, the book appears to be a collection of visions. But no, this book is not revelations of many things. It is a revelation of one person, the person of Jesus. Revelation 1.1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The truth is a person. It's Jesus, the double-edged sword that sings and stings. Jesus, who sits on the throne and has all power in judgment. Jesus, who breaks himself apart like the bread to give us life, who offers us a white stone with a name on it. May we as a church and as a people center our lives around the truth of that Jesus without compromise. Amen. Amen.